0: From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you.
1: Welcome everyone to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. On average, someone in the U.S. has a stroke every 40 seconds, and every four minutes, someone dies from a stroke. The most common type of stroke occurs when the blood supply to part of your brain is interrupted or reduced, depriving your brain of oxygen and nutrients, and within minutes brain cells begin to die. Prompt treatment is crucial to minimize brain damage and potential complications from a stroke.
2: On today's program, we'll learn more about stroke and stroke prevention from a Mayo Clinic expert. Also, when and why you might need a cardiac stress test. And we'll have tips for being a good mental health consumer.
1: All that, along with this week's health and medical news, right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives.
2: And I'm Tracy McRae. Well, the years
1: really go fast, don't they, Tracy? I mean, it's already May, spring in Minnesota, (laughs) and that also means that it's National Stroke Awareness Month. Each year in the U.S., there are more than 800,000 people who have a stroke. Stroke is a leading cause of death in America and causes more serious long-term disabilities than any other disease. I'd like you to read the next part.
2: (laughs) The older you are, (laughs) the more likely you are to have a stroke. The risk of having a stroke more than doubles each decade after the age of 55. So we should all be aware of the warning signs of stroke and the importance of getting to the hospital quickly. Joining us in studio is Dr. Robert Brown, neurologist and division chair of stroke and cerebral vascular diseases at Mayo Clinic. Good to see you again, Dr. Brown.
3: Well, great to be here with you, thank you. Thanks,
1: Dr. Brown. You know, we go over this every year with good reason, but explain uh, what a stroke is for Mm -hmm. our listeners.
3: Well, there are two main types of stroke, and the most common, which occurs in about 85% of people, is a cerebral infarction or a lack of blood flow to the brain, so in other words, an artery supplying the blood to the brain suddenly becomes blocked and the brain cells then are starved of the oxygen carrying blood flow to the brain
1: very similar to a heart attack very Same similar thing. Okay. that's right the artery to the to the heart gets clogged up and in this case the artery to the brain gets clogged that's
3: up. exactly right
1: so that's 85% of the mm-hmm. strokes the majority mm-hmm. and then the, the other type
3: yeah the other type of stroke is a bleeding or a hemorrhagic stroke in which an aneurysm or an artery ruptures leading blood to spill into the brain tissue.
1: Aneurysm. Explain mm-hmm. what that is.
3: Mm-hmm. When aneurysm is a little sacular or berry-like outpouching off of an artery, and when that little aneurysm ruptures, that can lead to a hemorrhage, a type of hemorrhage called a subarachnoid hemorrhage, with bleeding around the lining of the brain. All right, one other one, TIA. Mm-hmm. Explain that. Yeah, TIA stands for transient Ischemic attack transient means it comes and goes ischemic meaning a lack of blood flow and attack sudden onset So a TIA is a stroke like symptom that is transient now The important issue though is if a person has the sudden onset of symptoms We'll talk about a moment in a in a moment even if that goes away It's a very important warning sign of a potential future risk of stroke in the days or weeks that follow So how does that happen? Mm -hmm.
1: I mean, why does the TIA happen? I mean, it's like it gets clogged and then gets unclogged?
3: You stated it exactly correctly. What will happen is an artery will come blocked, but the body has its own system to try to break down clots where they don't belong. So that's exactly what happens is a small clot is present in an artery, but the body breaks it down. The blood starts to flow again and the symptoms go away.
2: I love it when you come on the show because (laughs) it always makes me think of my relatives. And I've said this many times when you've been on the show, but both sides of my family tree who had, I'll use my finger quotes, they would just say, oh, it's just a spell, just had a Mm -hmm. spell. It was a bad day. And it was only when I started interviewing you that I realized what was happening is that they were actually having many strokes.
3: Well, and the story you mentioned, Tracy, is unfortunately so common, that Mm -hmm. is that people will have spells, as Mm -hmm. they call them, or what are truly TIAs, and they'll ignore them because the symptoms will have resolved. And so they'll think, oh, I'm back to normal. I don't Mm -hmm. need to worry about this. I don't want to, quote, I don't want to bother my doctor, end quote. Uh, But very importantly, that is a key warning sign of a future risk of stroke. So don't ignore those transient symptoms.
1: On the list of things that kill people, uh, hasn't stroke dropped a little bit?
3: It has, and stroke is now the fifth leading cause of death. And we're pleased that with some advances in treatment, as well as in treatment of risk factors for stroke, the death caused by stroke is continuing to decline somewhat.
1: All right, let's talk about the risk factors list them off. Yeah. Well, Well, I mean, aren't they
3: pretty much the same risk factors as
1: for heart disease, heart attack?
3: That's exactly right. Uh, Plaque formation in an artery, the risk factors for that are the same for heart arteries or the brain and neck arteries. And those key risk factors include high blood pressure, cigarette smoking, diabetes, diabetes, Elevated cholesterol, those are the big four, and then there are others, including a sedentary lifestyle without much, if any, exercise, obesity, certain uh, sleep disorders, obstructive sleep apnea, and heavy alcohol use, and then certain cardiac conditions, an arrhythmia of the heart, atrial fibrillation, another risk factor for stroke.
2: Well, what about family history? Because when I talk about all of these family members that had spells, how important is that for me?
3: Yeah, great question, Tracy. And there are both genetic conditions that can lead to occurrence of certain types of stroke in a family, but then also some of the risk factors I just mentioned. High blood pressure, elevated cholesterol, diabetes as an example, those can run in a family as well.
1: I want to zero in on alcohol for just a minute because there was a recent study uh, published in the Lancet Medical Journal that debunked previous claims that one to two drinks per day might protect against stroke. Rather, this new article, this new uh, study said that moderate drinkers, I assume that's one to two drinks per day increase their risk of stroke by 10 to 15 percent increase
3: their risk of stroke yeah. so uh, what's the story well there's been a great deal of interest over the years in terms of whether alcohol at a very low level could actually lessen the risk of stroke and heart attack and by low level meaning less than one alcoholic beverage per day for women less than two per day for for men and particularly concentrating on wine red wine hmm. is a potential protective issue But it ends up that the data supporting that protective effect is pretty soft and it's unclear truly if there is any protective effect but the story that you just mentioned tom is that when it comes to even uh, alcohol use levels just slightly above those low levels i just mentioned may only, not only not be protective, but may be harmful in terms of the risk of stroke and heart attack. So I think the key take-home point from that study is we're continuing to learn that alcohol use, even in relatively low levels, probably is not protective. And anything above that one alcoholic beverage per day for women and two per men may actually be harmful when it comes to heart attack and stroke. So, all in moderation.
1: (laughs) All right, we wanna talk about the the, the warning signs. And it used to be you would come on the program and you'd talk about FAST. But
3: I recently saw
1: a new list, a new warning sign list. So so where are we? Well, I
3: think the FAST acronym is still the easiest one to remember. And FAST stands for facial weakness or facial droop, A for arm weakness, S for speech slurring and T for time. Every minute counts. And if you have the onset of symptoms, seek emergency care immediately. All right, I
1: like that other list too though, sudden trouble speaking, sudden trouble seeing, sudden trouble walking, sudden one-sided weakness, Mm -hmm. and sudden severe headache. So, and these came from the Stroke Association too, didn't they probably, both of them?
3: Exactly, the FAST is the acronym, just a way of remembering it, and the symptoms and signs that you just mentioned, Tom, are a little bit more of a comprehensive list. The bottom line is the sudden onset of difficulty doing something walking, inability to see, weakness on one side of the body, numbness on one side of the body, difficulty understanding others, sudden unexpected headache unlike anything you've ever had before. All of these are signs and symptoms of stroke.
1: May is National Stroke Awareness Month. Our guest is an expert on stroke, Dr. Robert Brown. Time for a short break, but when we come back, we'll talk about how they diagnose a stroke. And as Dr. Brown just mentioned, we'll talk about treating a stroke and how important it is to get to the hospital quickly if you think you're having one. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. We are with neurologist and stroke expert, Dr. Robert Brown. We've talked about the symptoms of a stroke, we've talked about the risk factors, and now we wanna talk about the diagnosis and treatment. And first of all, if someone comes to the hospital quickly, when they have sudden onset of something, how do you determine whether or not it in fact is a stroke?
3: Mm -hmm. Well, the history and talking to the patient or their family members or some other observer, as well as the neurologic exam, taking a look and seeing if there's some weakness or some challenges that the patient is having, those are the, the key issues to start with. But then that will be immediately followed with a CAT scan. A CAT scan is a picture of the brain that we can obtain very quickly. And that can help to tell us if there's any bleeding into the brain tissue, that hemorrhagic or bleeding type of stroke. And if that's not present, that can help to tell us that there might be an ischemic stroke or that lack of blood supply type of stroke present.
1: So if you think you're having a stroke, if you think you're having a heart attack, you chew an aspirin or two. Mm -hmm. If you think you're having a stroke because it could potentially be a bleeding stroke and not uh, the kind where an artery is blocked, do you
3: chew an aspirin or no? That's a great question. And that means in a small percentage of the time, if you take an aspirin, you may actually be worsening the stroke. Mm -hmm. Now that said, uh, information from our medical literature suggests that it's probably fine to go ahead. And if you're having stroke-like symptoms, Taking the aspirin in that way because the likelihood you're going to worsen any bleeding stroke if present would be very low.
2: The um, difference between a heart attack uh, symptoms that a man has and a woman has are different. Yeah. Is, is there a difference for men and women when it comes to stroke?
3: Yeah, there are some differences as well. We've looked at that both here at, in our research and elsewhere. And it does suggest that women may be less likely to have some of the very focal symptoms, such as weakness on one side of the body, as an example, and may have more generalized symptoms. It can be a little bit more harder to diagnose immediately. But in general, the symptoms that we talked about earlier are pretty consistent between men and women.
2: What about uh, younger folks versus older folks having strokes? Yeah.
3: Uh, Well, it brings home the point that stroke can occur at any age, even though it's of higher occurrence as we get older. But the symptoms that occur typically are relatively similar young versus old in terms of the symptoms we talked about a few minutes ago
2: and do young people have spells like older people do
3: they can okay uh, tias can occur prior to stroke at literally any age okay. including children and above they can have tias some some and important to emphasize not all strokes are preceded by that warning symptom sure.
1: all right we've made the diagnosis yeah. what happens next
3: well, it is it is an exciting time when it comes to stroke treatment. And I remember back, I think I first had the opportunity to visit with you both about 25 years ago. It's and at probably that, true. Yeah. And so I was looking back. And at that point in time, we were still in the infancy in terms of acute stroke treatment. But things really changed in about 20 years ago when clot busters started to be used for strokes. And by clot busters, I mean something given into the vein that would lead to the clot in the artery to dissolve. And so we'd start the blood flow up to the brain. Now, fast forward to a few years ago, we began to develop techniques using small plastic catheters, so little plastic tubes that could be inserted from a groin artery and then advanced all the way up into the brain artery. And from the tip of that catheter, we could extract the clot that was blocking the artery. And our neuroradiologists neurosurgeons are adept at doing that. So imagine this little plastic tube in the artery extracting the clot and blood is flowing to the brain.
1: Incredible. Now, the important question is how soon after the clot forms do you have to do this to protect the brain, to prevent damage to the brain?
3: Yeah, great question as well. And when it comes to the clot busters, in general, we use those in up to three hours after onset of symptoms. And in some people, Up to four and a half hours after onset for the catheter based therapies we can extend the treatment window out now prior to a couple years ago we could extend that window out to about a six to eight hour period of time but here again things have changed markedly we found out that by utilizing fancier pictures of the brain called cat scan perfusion or ct perfusion studies we could clarify immediately what part of the brain had already died off, was already infarcted, and what part of the brain was just lacking in blood flow, but still salvageable, still a part of the brain that we could save with the resurrection of the blood flow to that area of the brain. So in other words, patient comes in, we obtain these fancier types of images now, and we're now able to extend the treatment window up to even 16 to 24 hours in selected patients in which the area of infarction or complete loss of death of the brain cells is small and the area of salvageable tissue is large. So now we're treating in some people up to 16 to 24 hours. Pretty incredible, but what
1: happens if you're not close enough to a center where they can do this.
3: Yeah, well, many areas of the country and outside of our country as well have what are called telestroke networks in which one can present to one's local hospital and via an audio and video connection to a major medical center, be able to connect with a neurologist, review the patient's situation, even see the CAT scan and make a decision whether we should go ahead, start the clot buster therapy there, and then have that patient transport via helicopter to a medical center where those catheter-based therapies may be available.
1: So everybody's got the clot buster.
3: Yeah, most most uh, even very small hospitals uh, across rural areas do have a CAT scan available. That's a key to be able to get the picture and then have clot buster therapies as well.
2: For sure, that must be why it is now fifth instead of fourth in uh, risk for death.
3: That is part of it contributing to that. So
2: what are we going to do to get it to sixth or seventh? What's on the horizon?
3: Well, great, great question. We're continuing to identify which of the patients may benefit from those more advanced therapies even after that early time frame. In other words, extending the time window for treatment is a major advance forward. And interestingly, now there's some information that suggests we may be able to use clot busters even beyond the four and a half hour period by using a little bit fancier imaging, the CAT scan or MRI scan that I alluded to a few minutes ago.
1: All right. So now we know what you do for a stroke, where it, caused by a clot. Yeah. But what about the one that's caused by hemorrhage, hemorrhaging blood vessel?
3: Yeah. Well, the bleeding types of stroke, the hemorrhage type of stroke, those continue to be a significant challenges, and there are some of those patients that can be treated surgically by actually extracting the clot. A neurosurgeon goes in, excises the clot, but that's a selected group of people and others of those with hemorrhagic types of stroke. We really rely on optimal nursing and physical therapy type of care, but I should mention that's an area of neurology here again that we're working on extensively to try to clarify which of those hemorrhagic strokes may benefit from even new and different types of surgical approaches.
2: But are you even likely to survive a hemorrhagic stroke?
3: Yeah. Well, oftentimes a hemorrhagic stroke will survive long enough to get to the hospital, Mm -hmm. be able to get the CAT scan done and be able to have some urgent care. And I should say there's tremendous amount of research being done to try to determine if there are new innovative types of surgical procedures that may be able to treat those bleeding types of stroke.
1: So they actually take the blood out of the brain to take the pressure off. Exactly right.
3: And I should mention too, aneurysm rupture types of strokes, there are tremendous advances there. The survival following aneurysm rupture now is much better than it was even 20 years ago.
1: Well, May is National Stroke Awareness Month, stroke a leading cause of death and disability in this country. Our thanks to Dr. Robert Brown, neurologist and division chair of Stroke and Cerebrovascular Disease of Mayo Clinic. Dr. Brown, thanks so much for being Well, wow, thank
3: us. you so much for having me back again. I appreciate it.
2: Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, what's a cardiac stress test and why would you need one?
1: And tips for being a good mental health consumer.
2: Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network.
0: Hi, I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. A case of conjunctivitis, also known as pink eye, used to mean a trip to the doctor's office, antibiotics, and keeping your child home from school. That's no longer the case. Dr. Mercy Billings, a Mayo Clinic pediatrician, explains what parents should know about this common viral infection. She says conjunctivitis is inflammation of the conjunctiva, which is a thin layer of tissue that covers the white of your eye as well as the underside of the lid. That can lead to inflammation of blood vessels, which tends to lead to redness. Dr. Billings says most cases are caused by a virus, the same virus that's causing your common cold. Common symptoms include redness in one or both eyes, itchiness or grittiness in the eyes, and drainage. Treating pink eye no longer includes the use of antibiotics. Viruses, as we know, don't respond to antibiotics, says Dr. Billings. So start with supportive care. Use a cool compress on the eye and consider using artificial tears. It also means you don't have to keep your child home from school. Dr. Billings says you would send your child to school if they had a runny stuffy nose, as long as they were able to participate in normal school activities. Pink eye or viral conjunctivitis is no different. You also can manage and prevent the spread of the virus with good hand hygiene wash hands often, don't reuse washcloths, and change pillowcases often. Check with your health care provider if you have concerns, if symptoms don't improve after three days, or if your child has eye pain or visual changes. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams.
1: Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And
2: I'm Tracy McRae.
1: A stress test, also called an exercise stress test, shows how your heart works during physical activity. Because exercise makes your heart pump harder and faster, an exercise stress test can tell a lot about how your heart is functioning and if it's getting enough blood.
2: A stress test usually involves walking on a treadmill or riding a stationary bike while your heart rhythm, blood pressure, and breathing are being monitored. And here to discuss the cardiac stress test, why it's done, and what doctors can learn from it is Mayo Clinic cardiologist, Dr. Paul McKee. Welcome to the program, Dr. McKee. It's nice to meet you.
4: Yeah,
1: thanks for having me on board. Dr. McKee, good to have you. So this sounds like a lot of work. So who,
4: <laughs> who ought to have this test? In general, stress tests are done for two reasons. Uh, the first is to diagnose coronary artery disease or a blockage in the blood vessels which supply blood flow to the heart. And the second reason is to help treat other heart conditions like valve disease. They can help determine when it's best to operate on a person who has valve disease.
1: The first one is probably the the, the most common reason. Coronary artery disease, meaning that there's blockage or plaque that uh, involves the arteries that supply blood to the heart, which are obviously critical. Yes.
4: Yes. And so if there's a lack of blood flow, then a patient may have chest discomfort with activity or shortness of breath with activity. And the stress test can be very helpful in diagnosing patients who have these significant blockages.
2: I'm not a doctor. I sit next to one. I'm sitting next to two right now, actually. But it just doesn't sound safe to stress the heart. I know it's being done in a hospital, but is it dangerous at all?
4: There are certain conditions in where we do not want to stress the heart. If a person is having active chest pain or unstable symptoms, otherwise stress testing is quite safe. It's done in a controlled environment. We are monitoring blood pressure, heart rate, the heart's rhythm, and closely following symptoms. It's done under the supervision of a MD and very qualified technicians.
1: Do you ever have somebody get on the treadmill and walk about 10 steps and say, okay, that's good. You, you need to go to the hospital.
4: <laughs> that rarely happens, but it can.
1: And it's related to the fact that you realize that the heart function is so poor that there's something significantly wrong like severe coronary
4: artery disease. Sometimes we can pick up severe coronary artery disease within the first minute of a stress test.
2: So to that point, what if a person is not capable of running or biking if they've got
4: a bad knee or something? Great question. So the most common way to stress the heart is exercise. If a person cannot exercise, we have ways to chemically stress the heart. We can use chemicals or medicines to increase the heart rate to cause the heart to pump more forcefully, and those can be used as a surrogate if a patient is not able to exercise. See,
2: that doesn't sound safe either.
4: How long <laughs> You've does got it... a doctor, a heart doctor, <laughs> right there. How, how I, I
2: could guess, you be in a better place? I guess it'll be all right. <laughs> how long does this test take?
4: So it typically takes, if we're exercising... 10 minutes or less. Uh, If it's a chemical stress test, it can take up to an hour, 90 minutes.
1: What kind of results uh, do you give to the patient? I mean, after the test is over, what can you normally tell the patient about their heart?
4: So it's important to know that these are not absolute tests, meaning we're not specifically looking at the blood vessels to see if there's a blockage. We're looking at sequelae of the blockage. So an example, a change in the EKG that we suspect is due to a blockage, or a change in the imaging of the heart which we suspect is due to a blockage. They're about 90% accurate. So we can say based on the stress test results that it's very likely that you have a blockage. We can tell what the location of the blockage. And generally we can tell how critical that blockage is.
2: How do you tell the location of the blockage?
4: Based on the imaging that we're doing of the heart during the stress test. Mm-hmm. So we're looking at specific areas of the heart, and if the heart is getting enough blood flow, it's, it's beating, it's pumping normally, vigorously. And if it's not getting enough blood flow, it just doesn't look right. It's not moving as well as it should be. It's not moving as well as the rest of the heart.
1: And if that if that were the case that you saw something where you suspected fairly severe coronary artery disease, to confirm that, then you would probably next step do an angiogram where you would put some dye in there and you could actually see where the blockage was and how severe it was.
4: If the clinical situation is severe enough or the stress test is severely abnormal, yes. Typically, the next step is to actually directly visualize the blockages with a coronary angiogram. And that's an invasive study. Uh, Where we place dye inside the heart, and then we scan the heart, and we can see the blood vessels.
1: How do you explain the situation where every once in a while you hear about somebody who died suddenly, and they said, you know, or their spouse says, just last week he was in for his physical exam and had a stress test, and everything was
4: fine. (laughs) Yeah. So that's a great question, and and if, if we're looking at patients who have heart attacks. Those are caused by blockages, but typically they are relatively small blockages that don't cause symptoms, even with exercise. And those blockages very quickly burst. And they go from a a mild blockage to 100% occluded, 100% blockage just in the snap of a finger. And so we cannot detect those types of blockages on a stress test because they're quite mild. Um, And so that's where we see that situation, someone who may be asymptomatic and then have a heart attack unexpectedly.
1: And you mentioned valvular disease and that it it would help you uh, determine what and when to treat that. Can you expand on that?
4: So if a patient has a severe valve abnormality, but they're having no symptoms, often the risk of surgery or fixing the valve outweighs the benefit. If it's unclear if a patient is having symptoms for, due to the valve disease, we can put them on a treadmill and say, geez, how far can you walk? How far can you exercise to determine if a person is truly asymptomatic or not? We can also assess the blood pressure response and the rhythm, as you mentioned earlier, which can lead us towards surgery or continued observation. And
2: what is What is it that gets you to the point of needing a cardiac stress test? I mean, is this something you say, well, it's my, I haven't had a physical for five years, and I suppose now I'm going to have to do this. Or is there something going on that would lead you to this point?
4: So a great question. So typically stress tests are done when a person is having symptoms and symptoms would be chest discomfort, shortness of breath, chest pressure, those types of things. We do not routinely do stress tests on asymptomatic patients. Patients who have no symptoms, there's really not a good indication to do a stress test.
1: All right, the main indications: chest pain, shortness of breath. Those are the two big ones.
4: Those would be the two big.
1: And are most of these tests ordered by the general practitioner or the internist or the family physician, or do you have to see a cardiologist first to determine if you really need it?
4: Many family medicine, general internal medicine doctors, order these uh, studies. Often if there's a question about is the study indicated or what's the best type of stress test, our family medicine doctors or internal medicine doctors will call us and we can help uh, move them in the right direction.
1: Cardiac stress test, it's a a test that could give us a lot of information. Mayo Clinic cardiologist, Dr. Paul McKee, thanks so much for being with us.
2: Thanks for having me. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll discuss how to be a good mental health consumer. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network.
1: Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Jives, And I'm Tracy McCrae. Today, consumers have a lot of information right at their fingertips, just a click away on the World Wide Web. Now, when it comes to mental health care, there's also a lot of material and advice out there. But how do you know if you're going to a reputable source to get the help that you need? And can online sources be helpful, or is in-person therapy still the best, the gold standard?
2: Here to discuss is Mayo Clinic psychologist and co-chair of Mayo Clinic's Division of Integrated Behavioral Health, Dr. Craig Satchuk. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Satchuk.
5: Right. Well, thank you for having me back.
2: What exactly is Integrated Behavioral Health? It's an impressive title. <laughs> well, thank you. We, we
5: figure the longer the title, the cooler it looks or sounds. Um, but really, the idea of Integrated Behavioral Health is to move mental health uh, resources right to the point of care where people get their care, which is in primary care, family medicine, and pediatrics. So we have a combination of um, psychiatrists, uh, psychiatric nurse practitioners, social workers, uh, nurse care coordinators, and psychologists right in primary care um, to really help um, elevate all elements of a person's level of care right there. And it not only helps with access for people getting in for treatment, but it really helps with um, coordination and communication with our primary care teams.
2: It makes sense to go to primary care if you need your flu shot or my elbow hurts when I'm doing this. But to say my brain isn't working the way I think it should be working, our patients getting there? Is that happening?
5: Oh, very much so. And when you think about like the natural course of people struggling, you know, with, with difficulties, I mean, uh, mental illnesses um, are about affect uh, 30% of the population really at any point in time. Um, when people are struggling, their first thought is not like I got to go see a clinical psychologist uh, at a department of psychiatry. No, they show up in primary care and they work with their primary care docs. And um, Initially, it may look like more physical symptoms that they're struggling with, with feeling stressed or insomnia, Um, but it's not uncommon that mood problems show up way earlier in their course of care um, in primary care than specialty mental health clinics. So it's a great opportunity to be able to move that care um, where people are most likely to go.
1: And it's the team approach, which Mayo Clinic is so famous for.
5: Exactly. And I think that this is what's great about the the history and the culture of Mayo Clinic and doing multidisciplinary work where you're leveraging the skills and experiences of your team members um, to help individuals. I think this is an excellent, excellent example of this.
1: So for those people, uh, listeners who don't have access to a team like yours, how do you go about uh, finding a good mental health care provider?
5: Yeah, and this is what's really tricky, because in my line of work, what flies as mental health care can look very, very differently. Um, So simply going online, say, to Psychology Today and typing in therapist, you'll get a list of a ton of different people um, who um, say they do a ton of different things. um, But it really, really varies. And I think um, this is where I see some departure of mental health looking different than some other aspects of our health care that, you know, we have evidence-based treatments for diabetes and cardiovascular disease. Um, and we have evidence-based treatments for mental health conditions, but it's remarkable the tolerance uh, that happens in the field for non-evidence-based things continuing to end up out there.
1: Are there any reputable sites on the World Wide Web? I mean, if somebody said, "Where should I go, or where could I go, or what site might be helpful?" What, what, what do you? What would you suggest?
5: Right, so MayoClinic.org, which is right. awesome. <laughs> um, so we definitely like that one. Um, but uh, there are some great uh, mental health sites. Uh, some, a couple of my favorite ones actually are the Association for uh, Behavioral and Cognitive Therapy, so abct.org. Um, the other one is the Anxiety and Depression Association of America, which is adaa.org. Um, what's great about those sites is they're constantly updated Um, with the evidence base. Um, There's excellent um, resources, um, informational resources uh, for uh, patients of all age levels uh, that can be really helpful. And they also have find a therapist locators. So the types of mental health providers uh, that tend to um, operate according to the evidence base um, tend to belong to those organizations. It's certainly not an exhaustive list, um, but those are two really good places to start. Because I understand it from a consumer standpoint, you know, when we're looking for healthcare, we don't go on to PubMed and, and research the evidence base, you know, behind it. We're assuming that because they're professionals, that they're going to be um, doing evidence based work for us, but that may not always be the case.
2: What about once someone does get pointed in the right direction? Um, often, when you go to see a doctor, you want to find out what's wrong. What's what's wrong? But when you go to see someone for mental health, okay. Okay, finding out what's wrong, that's fine and important, but what to do with that information and how to go forward. How do you get the most out of the therapy time that you have when you're seeing someone?
5: Right. So this may sound a little bit weird, but treat your um, consumerism for a therapist like you would a car. Ask questions. So some of the things that we think about um, are typically components of good therapy um, is does... Does the therapist um, assign homework? Is there actual work you need to do in between session, Um, setting up treatment goals? What are the progress towards treatment goals? How do we know that we're moving in the right direction? Is there actual structure um, to um, what they do over the course of a given session? Because we think of um, there's a variety of different psychotherapies out there, and um, there are two Factors that we tend to pay attention to one are what are called non-specific treatment effects. These are just the things that are shared across all different kinds of therapies, like support and empathy. Um, coming into a professional office, it gives all those psychological features of this person knows what they're doing. But then there are the specific or the active treatment effects. And that comes from the science, the things that we know that can be helpful. So we take anxiety disorders and and on the show, we've talked about this before, is the number one treatment for clinical anxiety is exposure therapy. However, that tends to be the least likely utilized treatment principle that's out there. A lot of times when uh, patients are coming in with anxiety disorders, People may be doing relaxation strategies, which are helpful to a tiny little bit, but exposure therapy is our most important element. So kind of knowing what the evidence base is can be really helpful. And that's why as a consumer, um, if we can get educated from some of these online resources, then you can ask the right questions when you're interviewing a provider.
1: That's perfect. You need to go to someone who knows what they're doing and is knowledgeable in the condition that you have.
5: Exactly. And, and you shouldn't stand for any less. And, and you know, again, the evidence base, um, people like vary in terms of providers. Sometimes it may be a function of their education. They were trained at, at a different stage and maybe didn't have as much access to the evidence base. And so maybe it's a continuing education thing. Um, however, some providers don't believe in the evidence base, which boggles my mind. <laughs> um, but but you want to be a good consumer of, of your care. And it's, and it's tough to put that completely on the consumer themselves when they go out. So that's why um, going to those websites that I mentioned earlier on can maybe help give people a better sense of well, it summarizes what the evidence base are. What are the things you want to ask for and ask them how they do it?
2: You mentioned websites before when you've been here. You've talked about apps. Yeah. Throw a shout out for your apps that you mentioned.
5: Oh, there's actually like a really, really uh, great um, clearinghouse uh, website. There's this website called Cyber Guide and it's pronounced P S Y B E R. Guide. org. So cyberguide.org. And um, this is developed uh, by a psychologist out at the University of California, Irvine. Um, and he's done an excellent, excellent job with um, rating mental health apps and keeping up to the date with them. So they do nice summaries of what's the evidence base in terms of the app itself. Has it been tested in that delivery? Are they um, supporting types of interventions that actually do have an evidence base. Um, What is their privacy policy and transparency? How is data protected? Because some of these apps now share information back and forth between the patient and their provider, um, and aesthetically, usability, um, how helpful is that? So that's a great resource.
1: Okay, the app is cyberguide.org, P-S-Y-B-E-R guide.org, all one word, and the two websites that you mentioned are abct.org and adaa.org.
5: That's right. You've
1: been most helpful.
5: Awesome, thank you.
1: All right. We've been talking about tips on how to be a good mental health care consumer with Mayo Clinic psychologist and the co-chair of Mayo Clinic's Division of Integrated Behavioral Health. We now know what that means. (laughs) It's Dr. Craig Sawchuck. Thanks so much for being with us, Dr. Sawchuck.
2: Great.
5: Thank you for having me.
2: And that's our program for this week. You've been listening
1: to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives.
2: And I'm Tracy McRae.
1: Thanks for joining us.
0: Any medical information, information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.